Hello and welcome to episode 10, double figures, baby, of How Not, the brand new, can I still say that? I'm going to still say that. The brand new shiny podcast hosted by me, Luca Manning. And me, Kim McCurry. We're two gobby Scottish creatives who like to talk about the big stuff, not the wee stuff, the big stuff. And we thought you might like to listen. So here we are. Our podcast is here to remind you to always be good troublemakers. Think big and ask how not. That went a bit weird, didn't it? That was weird, but I liked it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just trying to keep it fresh, you know? It's nice. It's a sing-songy. Yeah. How are you? I'm good, thanks. It was my birthday yesterday. How was that? It was great. I had some nice Brazilian food for lunch. What kind of Brazilian food? uh, A lot of lovely prawns, like Mm. barbecue, Brazilian barbecue vibes. Then uh, went to what had amazing Sri Lankan food for dinner, actually. Wow. Whereabouts? Uh, Hoppers. In oh, King's Cross. I've heard. Um, and got a lot of books. Stunning. Dungarees. Yeah, these dungarees are amazing. We love Lucy and Yak. Such, well done everyone. I have, so the only bit of Lucy and Yak clothing I own isn't dungarees, which what? I think is a bit weird. Yeah. Because like, it's really it, a dungarees yeah. one. But they're really cool, like high-waisted pink trousers. Nice. So, so comfortable. Yep. Like, so comfy. And they've great, you know, it's, it's they've kind of degendered their clothing. And, yes. And all the models are stunning. And they are. I just like browsing. They're great. Sam, our technical team of one, did his final recital today. Congratulations to Sam. Well done, Sam. He dressed up just for us. Beautiful. In a, in a suit. Um, look, look, you've got a, a Pyrex jug there. So I can measure my water cold. as I drink. <laughs> Kim's been complaining about the weather again because she's money. It's uh, so hot. I've got such a sweet head. Like, such a sweet <laughs> And that's sweat with head. some of your hair falling out. I know, exactly. There's so much bald head now. I tell you what, I got the best compliment of my life the other day. I was in a supermarket and the lady serving me said, you got a nice head. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, thank you. Thank you. What do you say to that? Never, never I have I been complimented on my head. could before. never probably do a, a baldy because my head is actually flat at the back, right? True. So, and once I point it out, you'll never look at me the same <laughs> way ever again. But you know how most people... There's a have curve. A, yeah, 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 because yeah. they have a brain, right? Yeah, yeah. So me, straight down. Shit. You fall off the edge, you go straight down. Oh. I don't know if you can see. And what you think that if you shaved your hair, it would just be optically distracting for people Yeah, it'd to look see. like a, you're running off a cliff and then just a sheer drop. <laughs> it wouldn't be like a nice rounded situation. <laughs> I think there's a bit of my brain missing, like the back of my brain. What lives in the back? I don't know. What are you not good at? Everything. I think everything. Oh God, that there. was very um, self-deprecating. Wasn't, wasn't it? it? I'm fucking fantastic. Exactly. You can um, get all the best bits at the front. Anyway. Can I tell you something that made me giggle today? Yep. Um, so this Metro article, Metro Lifestyle, <laughs> rescuers learned that the exotic bird they found was actually a seagull covered in curry. <laughs> Look. Oh, God. <laughs> what? How did it get that much curry on it? I don't know. It looks like it's... Is it a hate crime? Did someone curry it? I don't know. I hope not. Oh, God, I didn't even think about that. I just thought it was funny. <laughs> well, it is very funny. Um... Anyway, yeah, that made me giggle. Oh, those today. poor people—they thought we're gonna make we're gonna make it into the zoological history books because we've discovered a well, new to bird. to be fair, I would probably read a lot more about zoological history if it was stories like that. Curry birds. Yeah, curry yeah. birds. Well, exactly. So, um, it's all right. All right, I think it's fine. Um, what are we talking about? What are we, <laughs> what are we talking about? 
Um, we're talking about John Cage. Mm. Um, Why? Well, I like him so much that his um, he's permanently um, memorialised on my arm because that's a John Cage. Wow. T- that's a John Cage graphic score. Incredible. I'm pointing to my arm where the tattoo is for as an audio description. I think I knew that, but you've reminded me. Uh, yeah, so John Cage is one of my favourite people for many reasons that I'll elaborate on at length. Um, but this, what do you know about? What did you know about John Cage before? Well, I I was aware of John Cage, and I, and I was always aware of the four minutes thirty three seconds shenanigans. Mm. Um, and I was also reminded with what you sent me about these letters between him and Mars Cunningham and, and I feel like a lot of people reference them as really kind of romantic yeah. letters and they're quite famous. So yeah, I was kind of aware um, and just a lot of people that I love, love him. So yeah, that's sure. always a good thing. It's a good sign, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just, yeah, I, it was really nice to kind of read about how much he meant to other artists and um, kind of dig a bit deeper. Mm-hmm. But I'm hoping to dig even deeper now because from what I see, I also listened to a lot of his music, mm-hmm. which I thought was really, really cool. And like, I think it's really interesting because he has this amazing legacy, obviously, but listening to more and more of his music, like, it's just really beautiful. And like, I think it's easy to write off people that lived some time ago now, but actually putting your brain into headspace where it was like at that time they were yeah, doing the this. context so they were revolutionary doing it. Yeah, yeah yeah so like thinking about that has been really cool yeah um yeah i think that's the thing like sometimes when things are talked about as being like groundbreaking or edgy but they were they happened in the past mm. and then you experience them and you think mm, doesn't feel that edgy right. to me but you got like look at what was happening context was yeah happening. context and it was um i can't rem- i was trying to remember when I was first sort of introduced him or or how I, you know, became aware of him. I mean, I guess he is, I, I suppose in a way, one of the most sort of well-known composers for four minutes, 33 seconds. Yeah. So even people that don't know anything about that sort of music or about, or have a knowledge of composers know that. That's like a popular culture reference. Yeah, right? it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess I'd always, I'd been aware of that at some point. Um, but yeah, for me, there's just so much of the work that he does. It feels like it wouldn't have mattered whether he was a composer or a visual artist or or a whatever it was. He's just an incredible mind, you know. Yeah, I mean, he had like a whole philosophy, yeah. right? Like it, it, yeah. I think saying he was a composer is just one of many things that he was. Yeah, know, and seems. he 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 felt. It all seems to me like there's a sort of really nice kind of childlike thing about him. I do, did you watch any like videos of him speak or anything? I watched this little clip of both him and Mars Cunningham. And then there's this, uh, what I did pick up on actually was when Mars Cunningham speaks about John in this rehearsal process. And he's just trying to get this piano player to to go deeper and, and to, to have fun with it. And, and there was, you know, he was kind of saying like, yeah, I mean, it, you know, playing the notes is great. I don't want you to play it badly. Like, you're playing it perfectly, but 
like have a little fun like go go further take a risk you know be yeah. dangerous like he had this playfulness definitely you know? yeah and like there's so many photos of him that he just has this massive smile on his face mm. and i think someone who is sort of deadly serious about their work but also make sure that it involves joy mm. is a really great thing so there's like if you think about kind of common perceptions of any any avant-garde anything would be like over intellectual kind of inaccessible inaccessible high bro kind of quite like takes itself far too seriously yeah 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 rod up their arse so i guess it was yeah it was nice to find him and then he seems to be like if if you if you were just to take his address book as your only the only people you could um, experience were people that he knew. You could experience a whole world. Right. Like, he was the centre of this huge... Thing. I guess, like, I think Miles Davis is another example of that. Mm. Huge network of people, lots of different directions, interested in lots of different things, drew really interesting people toward him to work with. I think John Cage is the same. Um, and so, in a way, it's I felt very fortunate that he, he was the first person that, of that type of music that i was drawn into because he is the friendliest person to open the door to that i love that like because a a lot of them wouldn't be as friendly i don't think Mm -hmm. um i think yeah so there's this um there's this piece of writing by siri hustvet called my louise bourgeois and it's about the fact that when you have a real well that you do have a relationship with artists that you really love and they exist fully and real in your mind and heart even if you've never met them and you will never meet them and so her writing is like my louise bourgeois isn't yours and isn't Mm. anyone else's and it's a really sort of personal connection that you have um and i remember i read that just after um david bowie died and some people were, I guess, feeling quite cross almost that there was a sort of public outpouring of grief for mm. someone that was a celebrity. So people that had never met him were very sad that he died. And I th- for me, that essay just completely encapsulated why you would feel such a raw Absolutely. emotion. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so when I was thinking about, like, who, who is my, like, John Cage? who Because he isn't, you know, my one isn't the same as anyone else, but... I think one of the things that I really liked was like his whole life was about asking questions, mm. like re- really big questions and n- never, and just, I think he had a sort of desire to encourage other people to ask questions. So not just big sort of existential questions, but just to challenge and question anything that was a convention. Mm. I remember him talking about it's that it's actually quite odd that when we go to see a concert that we sit all facing the musicians as they face out to us in the same way that we'd watch a film. But the thing about your ears is that they can hear 365 yeah. degrees. And so, and also, you know, if you think acoustically, there's a really different experience depending on where you sit in a concert hall. Some places are Absolutely, better than yeah. others. 
And so his question was like, why, why do we need to do that? We, mm. we needn't really do that. And so like, and I suppose that's probably why he was drawn or part of why he was drawn to work with people like Mars Cunningham, who's mm. a choreographer, to like examine movement. Space. And yeah. yeah. Be, you know, what, what happens if you position all the musicians behind the audience or at the side or, mm. you know. And again, now... We have surround sound, mm-hmm. so it seems really commonplace, but it it wasn't commonplace. You know, fifty, sixty. No, years and also ago. still the majority of performances that you will go and see, like, mm. are absolutely still traditionally sat. Yeah, like you know, I still think that like playing in the round is like something that's considered edgy. And yeah, definitely, and and something that you need to plan for. Yeah, it's quite niche. So yeah, yeah, and and it and playing in the round can feel uncomfortable initially because you have to get used to having your back to people mm. and how that because it feels so uncomfortable and I guess he was a, in the, involved in the world of classical music which is a world far more like in love with convention than right. other art forms so is it kind of interesting that he I don't know persevered is the right word but we well, did he lived in that world even though it was quite rigid right yeah actually he saw change within the world in which he operated as opposed to get packing his bags and leaving exactly yeah. yeah um because you know and he was there's lots of interesting connections that come off of him and there are sort of movements and and other artists and groups of artists that he did work with that did seem like the ideal space for him so mm. in a way I, I feel like it was quite brave that he he was he took that classical world and he was like no i'm here and i'm i deserve to be here i'm just gonna do it you know i mean a lot of his work's controversial yeah um and actually as i was thinking about it it's quite amazing how any form of kind of abstraction in in any art form is really controversial really it really makes people feel very strong things like makes people quite angry Mm -hmm. like and and to me, if a piece of art makes you feel anything, then great. Yeah. Like I don't need is, everything is to make you feel nice. Is that maybe like our in our nature? We need to define everything. Definitely, an, an order, we need an answers, understanding, we need routine. We yeah. need yeah, we need definition and and abstract art, whether it's music or visual or performance or whatever, absolutely throws that into tandem. I suppose you know. It, yeah. It, it freaks people out because not only is it open to interpretation but quite often there's there's not an answer you know exactly and so like it he was there's this thing that he references there's a book that he has called silence which is a collection of his writing and his essays he do he he would do a lot of lectures and essay writing he he approached it in the same way that he approached his compositional work so he would mess around with like the form of a lecture uh, mess around with like use the language like he'd use sound so they were performances really yeah. and not a conventional go into a university and give a lecture mm-hmm. and he said that he did there's quite a famous um lecture he did called lecture on nothing and he said when he did it he wanted to use the same structure that he was using in his compositional work and that was about like taking kind of segments of something and repeating them a kind of set number of times he did that with some phrases in his in in the lecture 
um, I think that the phrase is like, um, if anyone is sleepy, let him sleep. He said it like 14 times. Right. And this woman who's in the audience who uh, is a friend of his stood up and said, okay, I, I love you dearly, John, but I can't take, <laughs> like, I can't take a minute more of this. Shut up! Um, and like, I think that's amazing because um, don't, don't, what an incredible sort of impact on the world that something you do makes someone feel something strongly. To compelled, yeah. And to me, the only thing that makes me... Things that feel controversial or, or, or complex or any of those things are not the things that make me angry. It's like banality is what makes me angry. Like yeah. bland, Indifference. terrible yeah. shite. Um, and so it, I love it. And I know that he... He wasn't someone who needed everyone to love the work and feel comfortable with it. No. So, it, I, I guess that hit that woman standing up and saying, "Please, can you stop it?" is a success within itself. But we're all taught that art needs to make you feel comfortable and happy. Mm. That's how you know whether you like it. And if it makes you feel uncomfortable, then it means it's bad and you shouldn't like it or yeah, you don't yeah, like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um and it's actually really hard to take yourself out of that and question that. And like, you know, there's a, it's a, like you say, it's a whole philosophy. He really, he was a philosopher, I think. And he just used sound as a way to kind of share his ideas, his really big ideas. Yeah, yeah, about yeah. Um, I think there's something in abstract artists as well that would, this was like as part of a video that you'd sent me, but the Richter mm-hmm. cage paintings and, you know, We'll probably talk a bit more about them later, but there's something about abstract artists being able to remove the sense, the artist's ego, or the the kind mm-hmm. of sense of self-importance in art, because you know the art speaks for itself and mm. does all these things and makes people feel stuff. And and I guess if you had, if your ego was involved, then you probably yeah, just sick. feel attacked all <laughs> yeah, the exactly. time, personally, right? So yeah. yeah, there's quite a healthy disassociation depersonalization not disassociation you know they're very connected to what they do but a depersonalization of of them and the art i guess yeah definitely because i mean i think for me this that period i guess sort of starts at the end of world war ii onward um is like my favorite period of people making art you know not not just visual art and music literature as well. Mm. There's something really interesting about that event, this massive kind of seismic global event that impacted everyone's life. And so you see people reacting to it and how it affects them and how it affects the work. And and that's why abstract expressionism, which I guess is, is the sort of name for the visual art form equivalent of that sort of abstract idea, so it wasn't figurative, so it doesn't depict a chair or a forest. It is, it, it's abstract. Mm. That grew out of, it was like a reaction to what had come before, like massive kind of everything's fallen to bits in the world. Yeah, chaos. And Second World War and also kind of the Cold War and, and kind of totalitarian regimes kind of started to, they, they were using art as propaganda. Right. So it was like, you they were using it as a vehicle, as a message that had to, it was weaponized essentially. And, a, and it was a reaction to that. So try to take all that stuff away yeah, because people felt like they were just being battered by it. Um, like they were, they were being forced to 
you know, there was a right and wrong way to think and this here are the things that you should think and we're going to kind of shove them down your throat. Um, and so I think with any movement like that, it's interesting to see what comes before because so much of it is a reaction to that. Mm. So I think it makes sense that, you know, John Cage would be someone I would be interested in because it's it's the, it's a similar thing. It's His work is a reaction to Western classical music, right. which is like incredibly pervasive as the way that even if we've n- never studied it people in the western world that's how they're taught to hear of course um and and this rigid <clears throat> kind of do's and don'ts of yeah exactly listening playing writing yeah. there's a set of practices yeah in which you follow yeah yeah and like so he's the first person i'd ever encountered that said like why are some sounds called music and other sounds are called noise. Right. Yeah, I think that's one of... I was thinking about his legacy and, like, you know, one of the huge things was his embracing of, of sounds in everyday life as yeah. music. Yeah. You know? And there was something that I found on that that was quite interesting. Um, no, can't find it. <laughs> but there was that great NPR article of, like, 23 musicians saying what John oh, yeah. Cage's music meant to them and, and loads of people that came up time and again just to hear music and everything mm-hmm. you know yeah which I thought was was amazing and and yeah I mean how did that manifest in his music well I mean I think so yeah. four minutes 33 seconds yeah let's explain that what I mean, that is most yeah. people probably know but yeah so the the title refers to how long it takes yeah. to perform and essentially what it is, is it's the musicians, they do form on stage as a, as a normal kind of performance would be set up. And then the musicians don't make a sound voluntarily on their instrument throughout. So it's silent, except it's not silent because silence is very hard to obtain and maybe it's impossible. Mm. Um... And so the idea is that you, as as the audience, I guess, and the performers, everyone's doing it, have four and a half minutes where you can allow yourself to hear all the environmental noise that exists. You can hear the traffic and people moving in their seats. And if it's really, really quiet, you can probably hear, like, you know, your pulse in your ears or Mm. you can, you know... all the stuff that you probably don't notice in everyday life it's yeah. a kind of it's a it's an opportunity to be really present and take take in things when you're very very busy and you're having stuff thrown at you all the time all these things you might not um recognize or or realize are happening and you know it's a similar thing to like you know instead of looking at your phone or doing whatever go for a walk in nature have and a look at all the nature the sound look yeah. at all the lovely things you can see and hear and all that stuff it's just a sort of an acceptance that lots of things are happening around you and just to kind of recognize them i found that quote actually oh yeah and it's someone called dan deacon that says to me the biggest lasting influence cage has is the idea that music is listening 
that music isn't only the notes on a page that a composer puts there, it's the sound of a leaf blower, of the rain hitting the windshield coming out from under an overpass, the slowly developing choir of, oh god, I don't know how to say that word, cicadas? Yeah, 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 the bugs. It not only empowered composers to work with found sound and non-traditional sounds with greater freedom, but it also empowered the audience to find beauty in the chaos and noise of an industrialised world. Yeah. Basically, that anything can happen and anything is music. So this is kind of exactly, exactly. what you just said. Yeah. And that, I think that that word empowerment is really important. I think yeah. that he, his, at the root of his work was a move to empower the audience. So when anything is abstract, as a viewer or an audience member, you are active. So the the work doesn't tell you the answers. Mm -hmm. It doesn't tell you a story. It doesn't give you a clear picture of what's happening. It it presents you something and sort of then walks away and leaves you with it. And you are active because you can decide what to think you about it. You play a part in that, yeah. Um, and he described it as like, uh, when he talks about working with uh, dancers, he talks about it being a triangle. So the music is one side, the dance is the second side. The third side is the audience. They mm. complete the circuit. Because without them, it's the mind of the audience member that connects everything that's happening on stage. Yeah. So no, none of the, the music and the dance can't do that without the audience member being present. And I think that there's a real... I think if you look at some of the really sort of gross, terrible things about the sort of inaccessibility of art, people feel like they don't... They wouldn't feel comfortable in an art gallery, for example, because mm-hmm. they don't know what to think or they're not. They don't feel like they are qualified to know what they like or yeah. they don't understand it, whatever. But there's no lecture involved in the abstraction. No one's saying, this is a painting of Paris. Mm. You can't think of anything else but Paris because the artist has told you that's what we think of. It's like... Here you go now. Just have some thoughts. Just have an experience about it. You can love it or hate it. You can you can see infinite things within it. You know, um, and I think and that's each amazing. Time can be different. Exactly. It's ever changing. Exactly. I think that's the other interesting thing about abstract art is like it it's it embraces the the transitory nature of the human experience. Definitely. So this idea that change is a constant, and you know that art should reflect that and we are we feel different things at different times yeah we react different you know? exactly and i think that's what's that's what's so beautiful about it like there's some works of art that make me feel that feel very calming to me mm. that if someone else saw might they might find that quite a sort of they might have the exact opposite reaction mm-hmm. to that piece of work yeah um and that is the beauty of it you know, because all of that is allowed. And I think that that empowerment thing feels like that's a lesson I've learned from him about, you know, how art can be used as a sort of tool for empowerment, not just for the audience, but, you know, the musicians themselves. And I think also that idea of, like, choices and decisions. And a lot of of his work and a lot of the sort of concepts behind it that people around 
him were also thinking about were using art as like you're setting up an interesting situation and then allowing people to make choices in it and the choices that they make are the art you're watching it happen mm. and which is what improvisation is right yeah and i think that's why i like improvised music because it's the process of making it is the art itself mm-hmm. so it's not it isn't you're watching it live it's like the equivalent to like watching a painter paint a painting yeah, before yeah, your of eyes course, yeah. um and that is it's incredibly empowering but and i think that if i could you know if i could do anything it would be to make people feel like they were completely worthy in feeling all the things that they feel about stuff people who feel like they don't want to go in an art gallery because they feel intimidated I won't tell them that you don't have to like anything in there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fine. valid, yeah, totally. And you don't have to like something because it's critically acclaimed. You don't have to dislike something because it's critically acclaimed. Mm. You can just have a feeling about it. Or you might not have any... It might just leave you feeling nothing, and that is okay too. Um, and I really like that idea. I also really like the idea that when art makes you feel uncomfortable, that doesn't mean it's bad, you know? Yeah. I think that's a strange... Like in the episode with Matt and John, we talked about harm and crime being two different things that we're taught are the same. I think we're also taught that beauty is a very specific thing, which is like, there's no tension. Yeah, it's comfort. It's like, it's very consonant. Familiarity. Yeah. It's exactly, it's familiar, um, you understand it. All these things are built into us. And so that's why you have a really weird reaction when you see something abstract, because you're like, yeah. no, this is very frightening. Yeah. And rules make us feel safe, you know, so of it all course. feels like a little bit stressful. Um, and so I think, like, John Cage was probably the first example, but he opened the door to this massive number of, like, lots of different artists and I found my I found my place in the world with those sorts of people asking those kinds of questions um it's like there's a num there's a little group of people who I just feel delighted that for a little bit of time we were both on the same earth right and like he died in 92 so we weren't on the same earth for a long time but there's something just so lovely about the fact that these people exist. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Just, you know, um, and it's really interesting looking at the, you know, when you were talking earlier about the various people that were within his network and it is incredibly diverse, you yeah. know, like there's him and, and Merce Cunningham collaborating creatively and, and, you know, lovers and whatever. And yet then there's people like, you know, Yoko Ono and Patti Smith and like kind of more punky characters right. that, that cite him as a major major presence in their lives and their work and yeah. I think that's amazing you know definitely um yeah it's just it's really great like you know that there's a lot of famous quotes of his like I have nothing to say and I am saying it yeah and this kind of idea that everybody is a song that sense of empowerment yeah. you know yeah yeah it's for everyone and everyone yeah. can be part of it I think that's a really beautiful it's a it's a political message as much Absolutely. as it is else. there's a really amazing thing the work that he did with Merce Cunningham which is obviously is a big body of work and it's very well known you know Merce Cunningham was a choreographer and a dancer um 
again, very, very well-known, very well-recognised. But they worked for a really long time together. Mm-hmm. And actually, other... It, they would... So, yeah, John Cage would write the music, Merce would choreograph the dance. Then they'd have other people in their network, like artists like Robert Rauschenberg and Jasper Jones, would, would do the set design. Mm. Um, but one of the sort of central ideas and one of the big questions that he asked was... Why should music and dance be connected? Why should one follow the other? Why is it music accompanying dance or dance accompanying mm. music? So it wouldn't they wouldn't work in the sense that John would write a piece of work, give it to Merce, he'd pop it on the cassette player, <laughs> figure out a dance to it, and then they'd perform it. They would create work separately. And it would exist separately, but at the same time. Right. So the dancers aren't dancing to the beat of John's music. They are just happening at the same time. And the audience can figure that out. Mm. Um, Similar to the set designs. You go and do this. Everyone goes into their own kind of space. Maybe they would decide how long it would be. So... Right, it's going to be 45 minutes. Okay. And then it just happens. So there's no hierarchy. It's not, this is a dance piece with music. Right. It's not, yeah, this yeah. is music with some dancers. It is just, this. these are all as important and as unimportant as each other. Mm-hmm. Well, that, well, that was like mind-blowing to me. Yeah, that's such an interesting process because it takes, it requires a lot of trust, right? And yeah, massive amount of trust. working together and... And again, a sort of feeling comfortable being uncomfortable as yeah. well. Because when you leave it as open as that, I think this is what they talk about when they talk about kind of removing themselves or their ego from the work. Because if their ego was in it, you know, John could be watching the piece thinking, oh, I wish the dancers had reacted to that thing. Yeah, that yeah, done. yeah. That would have made but more that sense would, to me. Yeah, that would have made, like, gr- made me look great because yeah. I'd written that bit, but actually it's, like, no. it's not what it's about. And, yeah. I, and also, like, when when you finished writing the piece, it's not yours anymore. It's, like, gone from yeah. you. Um, and I think that... And again, same as, same as looking at an abstract painting and everyone seeing a different thing, these performances would be the same thing. So one person will see it and will make connections between what they've heard and what they can see. And someone else will experience that completely differently because there's lots, often in Cage's music, there's lots of things, there's layers of stuff going on. So someone will hear something and someone will hear something else or pick up on something else. Mm. So really the only way that work exists fully is in the mind of the person watching it. Right. Um, which is really is like a really fascinating thing, and yeah, because they'll get their own version of yeah, what's their own, it's their very yeah. own thing. So that was, and that was really quite like pivotal in terms of an approach to music and dance. Yeah, absolutely. And so, like, yeah, you mentioned their legacy. I think for both Cunningham and Cage, there's a huge legacy that they've left that is kind of recognised in. Well, music students and dance students, but also anyone in that field is going to come across those ideas mm-hmm. because they're they're so um, different to you know all that came before or or actually everything that came since really. 
Um, so the Merce Cunningham Dance Company that that Merce set up, and th- that's how they worked and um, delivered work. Still exists now. Yeah. Still exists, kind of recognizing the sort of base foundation of their teaching, but obviously with different people. Yeah. Um, and there's a there's a video of them being interviewed by. I assume a very nervous woman, um, but she, yeah, she's not particularly relaxed. But hearing them talk together about their work is such a lovely, soothing yeah. thing. You know, there's there is no ego in them talking either. Mm. You know, and they talk really clearly and really, they're very considered. They speak very. They both have very soft, like calm voices. There's something really relaxing about them, but they're very certain. You know, they're. They're not quiet because they're they feel unsure or they feel no, nervous. Yeah. There's a real like stillness about. It. They're just you're very content in themselves, um, and and give really nice clear answers to questions about those things. And you know the interviewer asks about really practical stuff. So how does it work? Like what if you don't talk about how long the piece lasts and then the music stops? Because John's piece is finished, Merce, you're still dancing. What happens then? And then they're like, "Well, that happens. That happens, and that's how it should be, and that's the end of it." And yeah, there's like there's something that just it's like that thing you said. It was like we need to not fear these silences. We may love them. we may love them exactly. And it's like, why is everyone so scared of of silence? Of exactly. and especially you know we talk about it all the time in improvisation, don't we? Like about leaving space and stuff. We're so yeah. scared to leave any silence definitely i think you know and and again you know another thing that i got from him was the idea of silence and really trying to interrogate silence and there's this book that i found you through him um called on silence um by george prolnick and there's you so much stuff that i'd never ever thought about like silence is very different means very different things depending on people's socioeconomic background so there's this bit in the book where there's a librarian at a school and she says she realized that you bring a group of kids into a library and you try and teach them the kind of etiquette of behaving in a library that it's a place for kind of quiet work and Mm. contemplation and reflection and you sort of encourage these behaviours and she would recognise that some kids would be very comfortable with that and some kids, just the kind of naughty kids, would would seem very disruptive and, and wouldn't be able to, like, stop talking or making noise. She said that, well, if you are... If you live in a apartment building that's pretty cramped, you've got quite a lot of brothers and sisters, uh, the walls are quite thin... Um, you probably don't experience silence in your life. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very oppressive thing. Yeah. And so it's not that they're trying to sort of disrupt. It's that they they have no... Silence for them isn't a soothing experience. No. It's a very strange kind of frightening thing. And it talks about the fact that, you know, there's there are like silent retreats, but silent retreats are for a very specific class, right? Yeah. You're not getting working class people taking themselves off to silent no. retreats. And so it is quite a privileged... To have a positive relationship with silence is a very privileged Absolutely. position. Absolutely, because I think to be silenced is something that comes from oppression. Mm. So, like, 
to feel like you have no voice quite literally is mm-hmm. yeah it's something it's frightening you, yeah it's frightening yeah and and if you don't feel that then you probably have never had to put up with that maybe before yeah exactly and like the fact it, it, the book references the fact that you know now you if you are traveling on public transport and almost everyone's got headphones in mm-hmm. but the fact is it's not a choice you aren't making a choice now in the modern world between silence or sound you're making a choice between uh consensual sound or unconsensual sound right because if you don't have your your earbuds in and you don't decide what you're listening to you will hear things yeah but you're not choosing them yeah and it also talks about the sort of the real psychological medical impact of of sound being that like if you know when they did studies around Heathrow Airport realized that the um, incidence of heart disease um, and depression were a lot higher when in the areas where the the runways exist because the sound like hearing environmental noise is very tiring right and so like they've done studies where having a sort of sound break being in quiet is as restful as actually sleeping and that they measured the sort of environmental noise from you see kind of 30 or 40 or 50 years ago to now it it's now at this deafening volume mm. you know because of there's so much traffic there's so much technology there's so much building work especially when you live in a city like London. oh yeah I, I was just thinking about my flat there and i was like <laughs> oh my god yeah and like, si- like sirens everywhere my and, like, ears are just pummeled yeah all the time exactly. it's like fucking four flats doing major building works like every side of us yeah like. so i was like i do not know the last time i heard silence yeah and like Honestly. i you know you hear of people who will go away to the countryside and they say they couldn't get to sleep because it was so quiet yeah and it's like you there's a restlessness there's a yeah because i think i am such a city kid as well i do freak out sometimes when there is silence or when i am away i'm like i get itchy yeah i'm like what's going on and like there was um they did there was a there's a bit in the book that talks about um a university that was being built for um blind people but it was a seeing architect that designed it and when first problem (laughs) exactly so maybe no uh when the people came onto campus they were like this doesn't work like this is mental like there's so many hazards here and so then they basically rebuilt it and they got um the architect to work with blind people and talk about like again stuff you'd never consider if you can see i have a friend who's blind basically uses sonar to kind of echolocate so sometimes he like clicks and he's, what he's doing is like because he can hear he can if hear there's the, a wall near him or if there's yeah, yeah the... um and so architecturally you want a building that you will be able to understand where you are based on the sounds you can hear yeah. um which is like incredible if you think about it yeah. and you and, and it's a privilege that you don't have to think about it because it's not a problem that you have um and so that this isn't in the book. This is a weird tangent. It's my favorite thing in the world. Um, there's a man called um, Neil Harbison, and he has really severe color blindness. So um, 
he sees everything as grey scale. Like, he doesn't have any colours. And he made... Well, he didn't make... He got someone to make this thing that is like a little metal thing that comes out right in at the base of his skull and up and sits here like a little angler fish. Now, it's like drilled in to his skull. A doctor did it. Um, And... He went to get passport photos taken, and they were like, "You can take that thing off." And he's like, "No, it's like it's, um, it's, it's stuff going to stay." Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so he was this like, "Isn't a fancy wig?" <laughs> he's like the first kind of rec- legally recognized cyborg because he has Incredible. like. So what this thing does is it's got a wee camera on the end of it, and it basically converts color into sound, so that Neil hears it through his jaw as you hear like you know so it transmits it into vibrations because um yeah the scale the sort of spectrum of light and sound is all one thing it's just the different ends of a spectrum so basically you know he got this thing popped in his head and he said for the first few months he just basically had constant migraines because it was information overload because mm. this thing's going absolutely fucking crackers all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, And like, because you don't close it so it's like taking stuff in all the time. You, you, if you close it's your eyes you just like, you know. never mind taste the rainbow it's like <laughs> yeah, fucking exactly. hear the rainbow. But eventually he started being able to understand the messages and he began to realise that this is the sound of blue. This is the sound of light blue. Here's the sound of orange. Um, to a point now where he he hears all the colours. Wow. And that is like the most mind-blowing thing in the entire world. Yeah. Wow. Right. Um, and like they, uh, they've done other things where there's a woman who has a plate on their tongue and it essentially, she's blind and this plate on her tongue... Um, reacts to a little camera outside and basically relays the information to her tongue and basically treats each little taste bud as a pixel and over a number of months she's learnt to interpret the plate so now she can see things. I mean, this is, stuff is like magic to me. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's absolutely oh my God, bananas. Big up the cyborgs. <laughs> I, I am loving this. <laughs> this is, is like a delight. But, I'm gobsmacked. Um, so yeah, so the, this thing about silence is is a really interesting. That's a beautiful anecdote. I love the <laughs> tangent. It's like silence is a big massive thing. Kind of makes John Cage seem a bit a bit boring. Boring. Yeah, now. He didn't forget have any it. We should kind of like metal drilled into him, did it? He? he didn't. Didn't have any special gadgets. I think we should just stop that. <laughs> yeah, forget <laughs> it. Let's restart again. Oh. Wow. Um, yeah, so that was an that's an interesting tangent that we got yeah. to there. Tell us about I mean the first thing that you sent me was the letters, which reminded me beautifully about they were quite famous and stuff. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about that why why were these letters so talked about, you know, between John Cage and Mars Cunningham? Well John Cage was a an avid letter writer mm. and he there's this amazing big massive collection of his letters. Only you only have Half the conversation, right? Because you have he's kept all yeah, his yeah, letters, yeah. but you don't have uh, you don't have the other half of the conversation. There's something really beautiful in that. You you read the letters and you sort of have to create what the what question were you asked that that's your yeah. answer. Um, yeah. So he obviously this is he's existing in a time 
before emails and mobile phones and all that stuff. So and and he loves he's someone who was very he you know he derived lots of energy from people. Mm. He's a very social person. So he wrote a lot of letters. Um and yeah, I really recommend the book. It, it it's absolutely beautiful. It's like you you build this picture of someone's life through these letters. It's like I guess the equivalent to like someone who keeps a diary every single day. Yeah. Um it's kind of the passing of time. Exactly, and, yeah. yeah. Um and yeah, so obviously part big part of that collection of letters is are to and from Merce Cunningham, who was his partner for a very long time. Mm. Um but they weren't they weren't that young when they met. You know, they're both kind of grown men. Yeah, John Cage had been John married. John had been right? married. To- to a woman. To a woman. Gave um, up that hetero life. And he was like, to know, no. To know what? Can't bother. Bigger and better things. Yeah, uh, see you later. Hello, Merce. Um, I mean, when you see Merce dance, be like, yeah, got it. Yes. Yeah, I understand. Um, I think what's really lovely is how, I mean, I just, I think they're incredibly poetic and romantic, beautiful letters. And. They are, they're very fruitful. I mean, they're, they're like, if you think of like, the the romanticism of like Debussy or something written down it's yeah. really that isn't it it's and it's, his he yeah. was really keen that his work w- was devoid of emotion right that's t- taking interesting yeah, um, yeah. removing yourself and your ego from the work means that there is no emotional component of your work and he said he, when he was asked about this idea of like what's music and what's noise he was like I don't I don't want a sound that pretends it's a bird or a mm. sound that pretends it's a it's a lover i'm happy to accept the sound as it is right. so i guess he didn't imbue any emotion into any of his work so then when you if you only knew him through his work or maybe just his work and some dis- descriptions of his work you might think he was quite a cold man you know okay. quite a sort of analytical yeah man. yeah yeah. Um, because you know a lot of his work was to do with quite strong structures and, and plans and processes. Yeah. You might think he's a bit dry. Then you read these letters and you read someone who so true, is like madly Bursting in love. With emotion, yeah. And like I, it's like he can't believe he was capable of loving someone as much as Absolutely, he loves yeah. Mars. Um and like it's got the when you, the first letters where they where they don't you know they they haven't been together that long, and there's periods where they're both away working or whatever. Oh, they can't deal. And it's like it is that feeling when you first meet someone, you first fall in love with someone, where it's like it, it actually feels like you're gonna die if yeah. because they're away. But the really beautiful thing is that sometimes that feeling it just burns out and these things don't last. But behind that, like really frantic like I'm in love with you and I want to squeeze you till you're dead was like decades of not just really loving someone but he found like a collaborator in him yeah wow so often these things do not last yeah like you know one wrong pirouette and Merce could have been chucked out bags <laughs> yeah. and all exactly but no and it could have been that you know he really he fell in love with this man really loved him but the they tried working together and they couldn't. That ego thing, though, yeah. the removal of ego, I think, is so important. Definitely. Because, yeah, I think that's what gets in the way a lot of the time. And when you when you see them, that the interview where they're sat together and they're talking about their work, 
you know, sometimes you see a couple and it's clear that one of the couple is more in charge of, than yeah, the other. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they'll talk over someone or they'll talk for someone mm. or they'll like, they'll try and translate their partner at what 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 he means is yeah. this thing or whatever. Um, or you'll often see couples that like billet each other. They each have their place somehow and, and, and it's like there's always a slightly unleveled yeah. situation and yeah. it's quite performative it's yeah. like a sort of play that you're watching yeah like characters yeah it? and people like fall into these rules don't they but with watching them is watching two complete full people who completely accept the other person and completely allow them to be exactly as they are and there's no they're, they're not trying to force anything to happen you know and even to the fact that they both talk quite slowly and there's these pauses and they both kind of navigate really beautifully. There's no, no one talks over each other. No one, everyone just lets each other be. And just, you know, and I think it's so lovely and they're, cause they're quite different. John Cage is like quite childlike. He's mm. sort of quite giggly. He's kind of like a fairy person. He's, he's got this nice sort of quite high pitched voice and, and it's quite sort of, He'll kind of go off, he'll be asked a question and then he'll answer a question that was five questions ago and it'll come back <laughs> round and then he'll stop. Someone will talk about something else, he'll start again on something else. Merce Cunningham is very different, he's a lot more direct. But it, like, works. It is well, like a dance. That's the thing, it's like two people that are incredibly sure of themselves and are autonomous, but yet obviously madly in love with each other, but exist in their own right. Yeah. You know, and that's the key, isn't it? It's like yeah, they're not codependent yeah. in a way that's unhealthy. You know? They're not kind of insecure about yeah who they are in yeah. their own right and what they think, and that could be different to yeah. all other things. And I think we again talking about context. I think we have to remember that it was illegal. Well, this is the whole other thing. The well, backdrop time, of right? it, you know, these letters were scandalous. Yeah. Um. Absolutely, yeah. In in the face of it all, they were just so in love and, and creating beautiful art together. But yeah, I mean the it was not not cool. An okay thing. It Everyone was not was cool. Not they were not that. you know, they were not out there waving flags, you they know. Were not. It was not yeah. And it was really you know, the, I mean like two visual artists they worked very closely with, Jasper Johns and Robert Rauschenberg. They were also a couple. Um it was you know, we've talked about this before. There's there's a very kind of clear link between kind of cultural progression and fruitful cultural environments in the queer community. Absolutely. Um, the way that you if if you didn't know that it was illegal, you'd get no sense of it from these people's lives because they never reference it. Yeah. They it, they just find a space to make it work. I mean, they worked internationally a lot, and I think that probably helped because cultures other than the UK and the US are a lot more accepting than those two places. Right. So I think travelling from But I think it's also it. an interesting thing of like this is a much bigger episode in itself, but like you know, how much of someone's queerness is shown in their art. Yeah. And perhaps all we can say about that is that not only does the artists have autonomy over that every time they pick up the brush or step on the stage or whatever, which is a beautiful thing. But also, all you can do is tell a story through your lens and the way you see the world and hope that it resonates with people yeah. or or invite other people to. In the case of 
a lot of what John Cage was doing with you know removing the self and empowering the audience like you know there's no doubt that he was who he was and that he had the experiences he did in his life and that will have informed him as a human being and mm. his relationship with Merce and whatever but equally his art was something that was so much bigger than himself yeah definitely and that probably did help uh, where, yeah. whereas you know there's people that have a much more explicit um kind of feeding of their identity into their art you know yeah. it's, it's both equally valid but yeah just slightly different way of doing it i suppose and i think his work was so controversial that probably i don't think people would have known what to be more outraged at if they knew exactly he was gay. It's, it's like, like it was like the fact he was gay it was, it was too much you know <laughs> the, the, you know can't be gay and silent, silent piece of music <laughs> and you're gay no i, I knew no. it i knew it well, maybe you can shag all the boys you want but write a fucking note on that page play otherwise a tune go, play, play something we tune. know play us one we know exactly so yeah he, his whole life was laced with uh, controversy yeah. um but yeah I, I found when i was looking at when i was making notes i found a notebook that so a few years ago there was this big jasper john's retrospective at the royal academy and um another john another jc actually um my favorite one not jesus mm. He's at the bottom, but jo- uh, <laughs> John Cumming, amazing, um, got me involved in 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 this project working with the Royal Academy, essentially, um, kind of creating work in response to Jasper John's work, and then um, because Jasper worked with John Cage, uh, and John Cage used a lot of graphic scores, um, it was about you know it was kind of half performance, half discussion about graphic scores, um, where we were showing the work and talking about it and then performing it um, in the Royal Academy. And, mm. um, and it, yeah, it was just the most delightful experience to, like, spend lots of time with the work and, and really get into... A retrospective, I find, is so cool because you just... You see someone's progression. You right. get to see all their work from their kind of formulative, formative years to the, the, the stuff they've just finished now. So... Jasper Johns is kind of the only one of this big group of people that are still la- that's still alive. Wow, yeah. Um, and so, and is very... Um, Merson John Cage loved a chat. Jasper Johns did not love a no. chat. No, uh, few words. Very, and I'd, it seems like he didn't really love a little joke, a little fun either. He was quite a serious man. Um, so the retrospective was great because it did provide a little bit more kind of who he is yeah, yeah. Um, but again it's this similar thing so what Jasper Johns is really famous for one of the things um, are these series of paintings which are, which is the, the, the flag the, the American flag mm. and it's kind of part of this movement of like take, like John did with sound taking things that people would consider not art mm. and make and creating art out of it um, so like another example would be Marcel Duchamp who used did a did a series called Ready Maids. That's the urinal that just exists as a urinal. Right. And it just it's a piece of art because the context, it's not in a toilet, it's in an art gallery. Right. And again, people get very angry about it. It's very stressed about Why it. Why is there a urinal in my art it's, gallery? It's not art. Um so same thing. So he would take everyday objects 
I guess like Warhol did the same thing with the yeah, Campbell soup say, pans. Yeah. Uh, take something that's an everyday object and kind of look at it through a different le- a lens. Um, really flustered everyone in the process. And so this is happening at the same time as it's happening. Um, in music, it's also happening in visual art and in literature and all that stuff. And this group of people really loved collaborating, which is another thing that I really kind of I'm drawn to with them. They like we've talked about before, didn't want to just be in their own little group of stuff. No. They wanted to be working with as many different people from as many different walks of life and disciplines as yeah. possible. So, so inspiring. I love that. Which is great. And then you see all these, you start seeing lots of connections where you've got the same central ideas. What is art? Let's take some normal things, make them art. Let's ask that question. Then you see all the different people taking that idea and making it real, all these different kind of setups that it was. It's like an incredible thing. Um, and but the other thing that um, Bo, that Jasper Johns did, the, the piece, my absolute favourite piece that was in that exhibition was this. It was like a floor plan of his childhood home and over and then there's loads of stuff over the top of it. If you look really look closely, you can see some of the floor plan, but it's obscured by these other things. It's like there's these this kind of galaxy, this is a spiral galaxy thing. There's references to some other, some other bits of his work. Big like, you know, hundreds of paintings on top of each other. Like that uh, Gerhard Richter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Talks about that's what I was over and yeah, over and over again. Layers and layers yeah. and layers. Um, which I think is just gorgeous. And then so when, even when you look at it you're not seeing it all and there's things under there that'll never be seen but mm. they are made and they exist and yeah they real. exist it's in the process yeah. amazing um and it was um the, the piece is called nothing at all richard dad and it refers to this um person richard dad who um was another artist um who was very unwell um, he made these really detailed, like st- stressfully detailed works. Um, the the most famous one's called the Fairy Feller's Masterstroke, which is like this <laughs> this f- like fairy tale thing. And there's like a trillion fairies, and everyone's very busy, and there's like a million people in it, and you could look at it for a hundred years and still not see all the things. Right. Uh, Richard was a troubled man, murdered his dad, oh. right little Hagen. Um, and there but this piece is that piece of work was Freddie Mercury's favourite painting wow he used to take pe- take the members of Queen to just stand and look at the Fairy Feller's Masterstroke then he one of the the Queen songs is entitled that and the song is a description of the painting amazing because um, there's all sorts like frogs playing trumpets and like Everyone's going on. There's a lot to sing about. And that, I really like that process. It's something that I use in my composing a lot, where you take a bit of art that already exists and you use it to make something new. Yeah. So there's, you know, poems about, you know, paintings about poems and, you know, um, paintings about literature and pieces of music about paintings and all that stuff. Absolutely. Super cool. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll, we can share that painting because yeah, it's 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 some intention. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Jasper Johns is kind of one of the examples of like this millions of branches that come off John. A Cage. Network of like, people, and and again, the the 
what you mentioned these these Richter mm. cage paintings yeah that's a great example you know so I, I didn't know much about is it Gerard yeah Richter as a painter but watching the video that you sent me that we'll put in the show notes was amazing because it was a coming together of a bunch of people that had been touched by this these you know these works in some way and he was listening to John Cage as he painted and it's abstract work and it's done with this ma- massive like squeegee thing that just like allows like manipulation and doing over again and again and and um, like like the music I mm-hmm. suppose you know there was a kind of a sense of improvisation but also a sense of control and choices and decision making and abstractness and remo- removing the, the self again um, but yeah, it was an amazing video to watch because you had that and you had these series of paintings and then you had Patti Smith. Always good to have Patti around. Having a sing-song. Having and a sing-song. Singing you know. wings. Um, and yeah, it was amazing. And, th- and then these two dancers then from the Maris Cunningham Dance Company dancing to Experiences too, which hit me like a fucking it's incredible, wet isn't it? fish. Yeah, yeah. I was just like, wow, on so many levels. Like, I loved... There was this one bit of that dance where it was just a focus on the hand movements mm-hmm. between, and it was like the rest of the body is still, but it's just the, and I thought it's so sensual this idea of touch and mm-hmm. and it's so primal and like amazing and like yeah it was just a close up of how the hands were touching and moving and intertwining and also just that bit of music was amazing and it's it was amazing so yeah so this video actually this only came out yesterday it's it's the Gagosian oh, really? gallery. Does these things called premieres? Um, and kind of yeah. So they're premiere. They're showcasing this bit of work. And but what I found really incredible and sort of beautiful is that the the these big canvases. So so that's a real kind of um, identifying feature of uh, abstract expressionism is huge canvases. You you know, and Mark Rothko talks about the fact that. he would. He said, ideally, you want to look at my paintings about eighteen inches away from the canvas because I want it to like completely take over your whole scope of vision. Right. So cover your peripheries as well. So mm. you could only see the painting. And a lot of the the painters in that of that kind of style are huge, huge canvases. And Richter's paintings are massive. Yeah. But what's so cool is that they're the backdrop. So they're constantly there. You see them all the time. You see them as the backdrop for dance. You see them as the backdrop for Patti Smith singing. You see it as the backdrop of discussions about John Cage yeah. as the sort of visual while you're listening to John Cage. Mm. Like All these things are existing at the same time. And then there's this thread, which is... Oh, which is John Cage, essentially, as yeah, the sort totally. of base figure. And then all the things that have come off that. And I think it's, that video is a kind of perfect kind of sum up of his his work, his life's philosophy. Yeah. Where it's like interested in lots of different things, lots of different ways to approach this this kind of centralized idea. All this stuff. And like another really kind of big idea in that movement is like um big th- yeah, because there's lots of layering. So they talk about um these layers of work being like you would overpaint and overpaint and overpaint to kind of um yeah remove yourself from the work mm. you just keep going you keep going over stuff you're just essentially destroying stuff you're covering stuff up yeah paintings that will never be seen yeah and then eventually you, you get to the end and that there it is. so and as a result they're thick 
Yeah. There's th- thick layers. Yeah. You can see the texture. It's called impasto, and you can see mm. like these. Th- it's not kind of flat, soaked into the canvas. Chunky big oil paint. That's yeah. or ac- ac- acrylic paint, which, which if you touched it, you know it would feel interesting, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, the police would come. Tactile. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. if you c- could touch it, um, that's ten grand <laughs> under your fingernail. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that, and that's I think why that piece of dance is so interesting. Because it is about touch. It's about the two. It's, so it's two true. dancers, it's and there's tactile. lots of tactile. Yeah. There's lots of really interesting touch. And you notice their nails are painted to kind of draw I attention to their hands as well. Love that. Which is like, I was like, who like, styled this? You're a genius. And they've got quite really neutral kind of. Yeah, it's like beige, beige outfits, and then just these like fluorescent yeah. yellow nails yeah. that just really make you zoom in on the hands on the, all the movement of the hands. Genius. Someone's thought about all this genius, shit, right? Genius. That wasn't thrown together in five minutes. Oh Someone's been like, right, God. I'm going to really they pay attention. their feet. Yeah, exactly. It's amazing. Um, yeah, so that's a really, that's a lovely kind of, a little showcase of all the and different it's, things It's also exactly in. where we started this conversation. Yeah. Was that he was a centre. Yeah. With several offshoots for his art and it, it, just revolutionary. He was, he really was. And like, Again, the really nice thing is there is so much to discover. You know, he, he isn't alive anymore. There's nothing new going to be made. But No, but yeah, there's still so much to... Very well documented. Like, you can hear a lot of his work, but, you know, there's lots of letters and articles and pieces. He was great with interviews. Uh, every interview is incredibly mm. interesting. And that's... It's the one sort of consolation to when you find someone you really love after they've died, right? I found John Cage way after he died. And there's yeah, something well, really finding, sad about yeah. that. Because you're like, oh shit, I wish I could, you know, I wish I'd known. But well, it's, it's all there. Tra- it's there. It's all there. There's a treasure trove. And that's why I'm so glad that... This is why, like, I think now is a real... At the moment, we're in the process, my quartet is in the process of picking the, the tracks for a new album. Now we recorded maybe enough stuff. It was probably about you know two and a half times worth yeah. of material, so we were cutting stuff down, looking at what's available. But there's a, a real desire to destroy stuff, get rid of stuff that you think is wrong or bad or didn't go right, mm. um, and that the resulting album has to be perfect. But really, when I think about all the art that I love. I love it because it's a document of a moment in time. Absolutely. And like, when is a moment ever perfect? Exactly. And so, like, if I, I want to see, I want to see someone's sketches before a big painting. Oh yes. I want to see all that stuff. I want to see someone's kind of half botched. Yeah. Yeah. Like all that stuff fascinates me. So it's like you, and the reason I want to get rid of this track or not use this track is because my ego's telling me. Yeah. I fluffed that. Yeah. And when I hear when I hear that piece, all I can hear is that mistake. Is it yourself. takes over because I my ego wants my people to think that I'm perfect. Yeah. And then but to know how destructive that is artistically, to try yeah. and, you've got to try and like shut that voice up. Also it like I, I so hear you because I think about artists that I love and, and voices that I love because we have it all the time with the voice and mm-hmm. 
you know, you're like, oh, I sounded a bit flat there. Like, and I'm like, well, I fucking love listening to Chet Baker, Billy Holiday, like whoever yeah. else, you know. Or you go, oh, my, my voice cracked there. But these are the very things that draw us to voices and make them human. Exactly. That, that, that you can really hear it in a voice because it's literally the body, but the crack or the moan or the, uh-huh. when you don't quite get it or you're just on the edge of being able to keep the note going or the to hear the breath yeah which is so john cage right the breath is the sound Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right it's mm -hmm. part of the music like to actually hear that before someone sings is uh, you know so often we're used to recordings like they go in and take out every breath and it sounds so inhuman weird and yeah i've had to live with that you know you know in recording process can i live with it because actually that is me that's a human being yeah, and that's me just that's what i did at that time yeah it felt right in the moment and so they were going it just exists and like no what actually then you realize that when you hear your mistake it's amplified in your ears a hundred mm. times no other people don't hear it like that mm-hmm. it's like goes back to this thing of like the experience of the work when someone else experiences it it's totally different and yeah. you can't control that as the maker of the work no it's you out can't. of your hands so it's gone now your part is finished yeah. like it's completely out of your hands that's super liberating but really stressful as well it's super vulnerable yeah and you have to feel comfortable in yourself enough that yeah if someone stands up and says look i love you but this is shite ah. <laughs> you have to be able to say to be like okay that's all right i know yeah great and i fucking love I'm it like, good i'm glad you're good i'm glad you're angry lovely yeah so um yeah i think john cage for me is like a little um, sort of secular god that tells me lots of very useful advice. And there are very few times that I can see or hear or read something of John Cage and not f- lift loads of new stuff off, out of it that I didn't know, feel before. And I'm like, you know, well done, you, John. That's it. That's it. Endorsed fully by the How Not Pod is, yeah, is exactly. Mr. John Cage. Now, as you were mentioning those letters, do you know about the letters between James Joyce and Nora Barnacle? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm so excited. Okay, Nora Barnacle, A, best name in the world, right? Yeah, I don't know why that really made me giggle. Okay, so... Um, Nora Barnacle. No. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah, so sh- not only Is does she... she played at the Vauxhall Tavern on Friday night? <laughs> not only does she sound like Z, Z cartoon... <laughs> like she'd be in SpongeBob. Should be in SpongeBob. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. She and James Joyce, like John and Merce, very passionate love affair. It just manifested itself very differently to John and Merce, and but they were equally prolific in writing letters to each other. So there's the there's the comparison. So same thing. There's a thing. Let's have a comparison there's a thing that john says where he talks about the fact that what does he say all i want to do is run down the coast kind of shouting for you there's this really beautiful imagery of of him kind of running down the beach kind of calling out mercy's name because he misses him so much because he's away beautiful kind of like you said very evocative language Mm. great okay now let's look at this is the letter james is writing to nora um <clears throat> you had an arse. We're only on word three. Sorry. You had an arse full of farts that night, <laughs> darling. 
And and I fucked the out of you. <laughs> Big fat fellows, long windy ones, quick little merry cracks, and a lot of tiny little naughty farties. <laughs> it is wonderful to fuck a farting woman when every fuck drives one out of her. I think I would know Nora's fart anywhere. In fact, I think I could pick hers out in a room full of farting women. It's a rather girlish noise, not like the wet, windy fart that I imagine fat wives have. It's sudden and dry and dirty, like a bold girl letting off uh, in a school dormitory at night. I hope Nora will let off no end of her farts in my face so that I may know their smell also. Oh. Uh, what? Uh, uh. Yeah. I don't really don't know how I feel about that. It's intense, isn't it? It's very, very... You're right in there. There's, n- there's no... Like you were saying before we started recording, when someone calls you up at, for a very specific purpose but does some small talk beforehand. No, oh, there's how are you no going? How are you fucking going? small talk. Right, we're right there. in at farts. We're right in. I've fucked the farts out of you. We're right in. I have no time for asking how you're getting on and I don't know how what I you have feel for your tea. I received that letter. Well, what's nice is that in, in each other, they've found their kind of sexual soulmate. I'm sure they're so very happy together. So Nora yeah. is fucking right into it. She's okay. like, yes. She's loving it. I'm delighted. I would like it? to think that I don't shame, I don't kink shame, you know. Absolutely. Um, I th- listen, if I think the two people are enjoying those farts, you go for it. You fart all you want. I think it's like, it's good to ask initially, though, isn't it? Yeah. You're like, just yeah. to make sure. Are you into farts? Because I'm, I'm really into farts. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get any further into this, I just need, need you to know you that just like, put it's, it in it's the my bio main thing. beforehand. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, okay, I know what I'm getting into here. Um, I mean, yeah, first date cards on the table exactly because there's no point you know you're not going to put time into something that's not going to work when she's like oh no I hate farts they're my least favourite body um, expulsion (laughs) he's like oh shit well I'm not going to marry you then back to the drawing board Um, he's got loads of really lovely nicknames for her um, my little cunty being one of them (laughs) Um, and yeah I mean it's the most it's the most joyful explicit material I've ever read in my life so yeah, so when you if Thank you're thinking you for us. Oh absolutely. If you're thinking, Oh, I'd really like to read some letters, I'd really like to get back into why does no one write letters anymore? Maybe I'll what, but you're thinking, I need to find I mean, some we're different not examples. Talking if you're wanting to write a postcard home for your um new COVID safe holiday, you mm. know, back to the farm to granny to put on the fridge, maybe don't look at them. Or do if you want to shock. Um, but yeah, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Wanting to get back into the letter writing thing and then... Uh, but you might be thinking, you might read John and Merce and you might think, well, that's good, but it doesn't sound like me. Mm. And then you might read John, uh, James and, and Nora and you think, that's it. That's, that's it. That's my, that's my groove that the I was being looking at. That's the one. And then you can have these different inspirations from different in sources. You middle as well, you know. Right. So, and, so that's a little bonus. Yeah. Not only are you getting John Cage, you're also getting these letters, Nora and James. Absolutely. Are. Also, I mean, yeah, if any of our you lovely listeners want to write into us, you can do so at an account that I've forgotten. What's our email? How not podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, write us a letter. Write us that a letter. That is our task to you. Yeah, a lovely letter Let can us be know about anything. About anything, want. preferably about how amazing we are. Mm. But 
about anything you want mm-hmm. and then we will read out some of these letters yep at our next on the next episode we will because we love letters too we so. do i want i want letters i want someone to write me letters not about my farts maybe <laughs> but but about um something running after me in the forest exactly or whatever it was. yeah yeah um yeah so let's in, let's celebrate john cage and celebrate writing, writing letters, letters and celebrate finding someone brilliant that you love absolutely well done everyone well done everyone good night okay bye